Luke chapter 5. Last week we were at the point of about verse 27. That's where we'll pick up today. There's a shift taking place in Luke's account. I'm not sure if you've picked up on it yet, but it'll become more and more evident as we move through the next ten chapters. Starting with chapter 6 next week, but moving beyond for the following ten chapters, you're going to notice Luke begin to draw a very important contrast. Begin with one observation. Jesus is no longer an unknown quantity. He's no longer this strange, mystical kind of figure traveling in the deserts of the Galilee. He's done enough work now, he's been in enough cities, that his reputation now precedes him. So he's begun to make, not just a name for himself, but more notably, he's begun to make powerful enemies. And Luke makes a strong effort throughout the next ten chapters to really draw a contrast between Christ and what he does in his teaching and the powerful enemies he makes in the form of the religious leaders of the day. And the contrast is not strictly on the basis of good versus bad, good teaching versus bad teaching. It's more fundamental than that. It's really a reflection of the world and its attempts at heaven, effectively, at righteousness. And on the contrasting side, on the other side, Christ and what he brought and what he offered, what the only true way was to that problem of how do we get to heaven. This contrast becomes the key focus for the next ten chapters. In fact, as we'll see in several weeks from now, it culminates with the prodigal son. The prodigal son ends three parables in chapter 15, which itself culminates ten chapters of this building tension between Christ and the Pharisees. And we actually see the seeds of that controversy laid today in chapter 5 and next week in chapter 6. So let's begin to take note of those contrasts, of the differences between religion and relationship of the differences between joy of faith and bitterness of works, and the difference between forgiveness and retribution. And these are going to be the key concepts that Luke pre- presents as we move forward. And even as Jesus contended with the religious leaders of his day, and he began to reveal them as the hypocrites that they were, he also ministers to the lost and to those who are in need of uh, joy, those who are in need of forgiveness, those who are in need of hope, revealing to them the love of God. So he's really serving two groups in different ways. Let's begin with Luke 5. We're just going to read a couple of verses to begin with. Luke 5, 27. After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. This is sort of a short, almost too short account of how the disciple Matthew, as he'll become known, joins Christ. And it's, it needs to take a moment of time to sink in for us to understand what really happened in this moment. And really, we have to get a little background first on what it meant to be a tax collector. Now, in the Roman control of Judea, in the day that Rome controlled Judea, they made it a province, which meant very essentially like what the British did to the American colonies. They owned the land, they controlled it, they had authority over it, but they didn't give it equal rights within the context of the overall empire. So a Judea province, in this case the Judea province, was under Roman authority, but it didn't have equal standing in the Roman Empire. And the clearest way you saw that was in the way they used taxation. Just as the British would tax the colonies for the sake of 
driving revenue back to the home country, yet they didn't give the colonies any representation in the parliament. They gave them no opportunity to have equal standing with other uh, parts of the empire, nor did they give them any chance to contend with the taxation, to argue for or against it, to have any influence over it. They merely were subjected to taxation. The Romans did the same thing with their provinces. In fact, their primary interest in the province was largely the same as the British Empire's interest in the colonies. For raw goods and materials they could mine from the area and take back to the rest of the empire, and for the taxation, for the revenue. And here we have an example of exactly how that took place. The Romans would hire natives to play the role of tax collector. So in this case, Levi, clearly a Jewish name, we're looking at a Jew within the province of Judea who had essentially become a turncoat. He had become a tax collector for Rome. Now remember, taxes were unspecified. There was no law that specified how much you would tax somebody in Judea on any given day for any given thing. No, they did it a little more simply than that. They gave a tax collector a quota. And the tax collector had to return so much money to the state by a certain time. And they couldn't care less how you got the money. Now, the tax collector had the authority of the Romans behind him so that he could enforce his tax collecting by Roman soldiers coming to his aid if it, would, if it were necessary. And the people knew that. So they had the power and influence to do what they wanted to do. And they had no rules about how to do it. And often they would collect much more than they were required to turn in, and that's how they gained their own wealth. Well, you can see how this would go on. For example, this booth here, it's a roadside booth. And probably on a road between Hazor and Damascus, which was the main trading route that brought goods into the land of Judea from the north. And based on the fact that that road goes right through the Galilee, it's likely this is the road that this booth is on. And the taxing would take place on any cart that passed by. But the funny thing was they could tax anything they wanted. They could tax the goods in the cart to any amount they defined. They could tax the cart itself. They could tax the animal. They could tax the wheels on the cart. They could tax anything they wanted as the cart rode by to get whatever amount the tax collector wanted. It was extortion, essentially, under the authority of the Roman Empire. Obviously, tax collectors were not well-liked. And in fact, it's probably the case that any Jew who had sold out in this way was ostracized from fellow Jews. They were seen as a traitor to the enemy. They would have very few, if any, friends. In fact, it's likely that the only friends they had were other tax collectors. And so they became a group under their own. And they often were very wealthy. So here we find Levi. Or as I said, he'll be known as Matthew. Uh, the, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And the scripture, as I said, records only this brief exchange with Levi. Jesus stops at the booth, apparently. He invites Levi to follow him. And then we're told in the next verse, he gets up and he leaves everything. It almost seems too abrupt again. It almost seems as though no one would really do this. And let's get specific for a moment. Matthew's leaving behind his profession. What he's doing effectively is he's turning from his sin or his, his traitor uh, nature, his turning from the Jews and going with the Romans. He's leaving that behind. And he's joining up with Jesus as one of Jesus' disciples. The word disciple just means pupil, means student. So when you hear of a rabbi, or in the case of Jesus himself, having disciples, you're talking about a teacher who effectively has a class of students who decide they're going to follow this teacher. This teacher is the one for them. And they're going to be brought up in the ways of this teacher and effectively replace him, become his protege. And that's what Matthew has agreed to do. Now, why do you think 
Matthew would be so willing to leave behind what he's established in his life and in this arguably successful career and become a student again to a teacher. And as you give it more thought, I think it becomes even less surprising, actually, as you think more about it. And here's what I mean by that. Consider Jesus' fame at this point. He's known for being the man that he is and what he can do. And it's a very extraordinary kind of fame. He's like a rock star now. He has huge crowds that go everywhere he goes. He's, he's really famous. And that fame and that rock star status, if you will, gives people like Matthew, who have no friends in the Jewish community, who have been completely ostracized from his own people, gives them something to consider when this very famous man steps up to him out of nowhere and says, I'm picking you. Follow me. You have to imagine that he would have been flabbergasted that Jesus even stopped at the booth, much less gave him any notice. He is the pariah of Jews. And yet he stops, and as a, as a teacher, as a famous rabbi, one who's intended to have disciples, it's only natural that he would select them, that he would bring a, a class of pupils around him. That's what would have been normal. It's almost hard not to see Matthew take the offer. It would be like the lowest of the low getting picked by Donald Trump to go on The Apprentice Show. You, you might look at your life and say, well, how can I just walk away from all this? And then half a second later you go, what am I saying? Of course I'll go. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. And that's, I think, the spirit in which he left everything and went to follow Jesus. He had hit the lottery in the sense of the Jewish culture. But I also believe there's another reason that prompted Matthew to do what he did. And it's probably a reason I think we can identify with a little better. We've already said Matthew was a hated man, that he was a turncoat, he was a traitor. And ever since he's taken that role, remember, he's had to face the contempt of everyone he knew in that culture, probably even including his family. And he had to respond, I would imagine at times, just to make himself feel better by getting back at them a little bit. You know, if your pride's wounded and your ego's built, has is, is been crushed by people talking about you being a traitor, at some point, you probably stop and say, well, I'll show them. I'll just tax them all the more. I'll show them how powerful I am. There's almost this retribution kind of instinct that steps in at that point. I wouldn't be surprised if he was doing some of those things as well. And even though he's rich and he's got all this power, I also think he's probably empty. Inside, here's a man who, who probably is longing to have the companionship of his Jewish brethren, but he can't. He realizes he feels a little guilty over what he's done, kind of selling out in this way. None of that money, I'm sure, is really satisfied. And the power doesn't really make up for the deficits that he's suffering with in that culture. I doubt he's very happy. And I believe he may have even hated himself a little bit over it all. And here's Jesus who walks up and gives him the opportunity to escape all of that in a moment. Because now he'll be known as the disciple of this famous Jewish teacher. And in that, he has this sudden, this, this radical freeing opportunity to step away from the mistakes he's made and go now back into a culture he longs for. To start again, essentially. To just begin all over again. And that's what he's done. I think Jesus must have told Matthew at some point that all that his history had in it was forgiven, was gone, was forgotten. It's his past, and this truly was a new beginning. Join me, follow me, and all that's happened is forgiven. And you are now with me. But it's the same for us, though I think many times we forget that. Whatever we were doing in the moment Christ came into our life, whatever booth we were sitting in, so to speak, that's done. At the point of follow me, it's a start again. It's a new life. There's completely nothing from the past that comes with us into the new. No guilt, no 
culpability for sin, all of that has been forgiven. You've been, in fact, we've been forgiven not just of what we've done, but what we will do. There is no lack, no limit to that forgiveness. But now here's the key, and this is where we're going to go next in this passage. The key now is, what do you do having been taken out of the booth? In the case of Matthew, he now becomes a pupil, a disciple of Christ. It's not merely that you stay in your booth and accept Christ and go right back to what you were doing the minute he found you. The difference is you leave the booth and begin following after him in a material way, in a meaningful way, in a life-changing way. There has to be decision after decision, day after day now, that is different because you've walked away from what you were doing before. You have to learn a new life. And I think if we do anything like what Matthew was doing, if we do anything like his life in terms of selling out, of taking on the world's values instead of staying with what we know is right, I'll bet you the mistake we make more often, however is the mistake he didn't make. And that is, we hear Jesus' offer, we agree to become his pupil and his student, and then we go right back into the booth. We stay in the booth, as it were. We don't actually live any life differently. It's almost like we want to become his pupil by correspondence. You know, we, we got the book, we got the material, but we're just going to stay where we were at the point he found us and learn from afar. That doesn't mean, I'm not talking about going into ministry full-time. That wasn't even the sense of being a pupil or a disciple. That was a common activity for people even as they farmed or fished in some cases. Being a disciple and a pupil meant more about walking under the leadership and teaching of a man who could then change the way you saw the world and reacted to it. For some, it may rise to the level of full-time professional ministry. But for Matthew, the change was leaving behind a profession of shame and of dishonesty and oppression, becoming a man who collected new believers rather than more money. And that's ultimately what we can do as well. We can leave, perhaps, in a profession, stay in a profession, maybe not, but at least we can leave behind hurtful habits, we can leave behind tendencies that we want to dispense with, leave behind selfishness in all its forms, maybe other lifestyle choices. And it makes no difference what we're told to leave behind. But one thing's for sure, we're not supposed to stay in the booth. If your life looks exactly like it did the day Christ came into your life, then I would argue you stayed in that booth. Now the next verse is going to give us some additional insight into Matthew, into how Jesus is going to use Matthew to make a larger point to the religious leaders. Think about this for a minute. Jesus walks down that road. He probably had thousands of people he could have walked up to. He walked up to a man in a booth who Christ knew that when he called that man and that man responded, it would be a scandal. It would draw the attention of everybody. It would have been the most amazing person he could have picked. And sure enough, look in verse 29. Levi gave a big reception for him at his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So after Jesus invites Matthew to become his disciple, Matthew, as we said, probably has a fair amount of money. And that's reflected by the fact that he throws a big party for lots of people. In fact, what do you do when you quit your job? You hold a party for you, your friends, right? I mean, that's, you quit your job, let's go celebrate. Let's, I, got, I got nothing to do tomorrow. Come, everybody come to my house now and let's have a big party. It's kind of in that spirit 
of celebrating what he's done, of moving out of that life and of the man who gave him reason to do that. So it's a, essentially it's a party in honor of Jesus, but think of it more as a reception. There's an open-ended invitation here. It's really not just for those that know Matthew, but anyone. And he's making anyone who wants to come in a guest of that party. Notice, as we said earlier, most of who are there, though, are other tax collectors. That makes some sense. That's his, that's his little circle of friends. But it includes other people as well. And it seems, as we notice this open invitation, that even the Pharisees respond to the invitation. Though you must have believed they probably had mixed emotions about being there. They, they were too curious to stay away. They knew they had an opportunity to be there, but they weren't going to be seen as supporting and condoning what was going on. They were going to stand at a distance even as they participated and make known that they looked down upon this whole activity and upon all that would be a part of it. And yet they're there. Together with the scribes, they comment about Jesus' willingness to be seen with these people. The, the Pharisees were told they're, they're grumbling. That word in the Greek, it's actually not literally being translated properly because it's not meant to be literal. It, it, it is actually a turn of the phrase in the Greek. It literally means buzzing as bees. But that phrase, when it's used in the Greek, is meant to suggest this kind of murmuring, mumbling kind of discussion on the side. And that's what they're doing. They're talking amongst one another, essentially saying, I can't believe they're doing this. Can you believe what he's doing? Can you actually believe a man would do this? Doesn't he know better? Doesn't he know who these people are? This excited kind of gossipy, displeased conversation. And they call the crowd there tax collectors and sinners. And really, they're one and the same in the minds of the Pharisees. That's why the phrase is being used that way. He's just sort of summing up the nature of the crowd. Tax collectors and sinners. Cheats and thieves. It's that kind of phrase. And sinner here actually has a more specific meaning. It means sinner. The word being used Greek is just the standard word for sinner. But in the context of tax collectors and sinners, really we're talking here about anyone who would not submit to the Mosaic law. Keep in mind, these men who had become tax collectors, once they were ostracized from the Jewish culture, the last thing they cared about was trying to con conduct all the Jewish ceremonial law, the religious rules of the Mosaic law. They dispensed with all of that. They effectively stopped being religious. They looked a lot like you would see even today in Israel, Jews who are completely secular. There's, there's nothing about their life that looks religious. They, they just carry the name Jew because of their culture, because of their heritage. That's how these men would have been. Dispensed with any intention or interest in the law whatsoever. And it's in that sense that the Pharisees are criticizing them. Remember, the Pharisees were not idiots. They knew that all men had sin. They're not saying that these people somehow had sin and no one else did. They're talking in terms of how they responded to that sin. They, number one, made no attempt to cover it or atone for it. They made no attempts to participate in the Jewish law or any of the Jewish ceremonial system that was intended in their minds to atone for law, for, for sin. But secondly, they flaunted their sin. Secondly, they lived a life that simply enjoyed their sin, it seems. They made no attempt to cover it up. They weren't the least bit embarrassed about the fact that they lived this life in a, in a, uh, that was against the law. Now, I'm not condoning it either. I'm not saying because they were happy about it, somehow these people were doing the right thing. But I am pointing out that the Pharisees' concern with them was not in helping them be more righteous, helping them be better people, live a more God-pleasing life. No, their concern was they're breaking our rules and they're flaunting it in front of other people. And it was purely a wound that they felt personally to their authority. So the Pharisees approach, not Jesus, notice, not Jesus, but the disciples. The Pharisees do not go up and criticize Jesus to his face. They turn to the disciples. And 
Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees aren't willing to confront Jesus himself, but instead, what are they trying to do? They're trying to influence his students. They're trying to put their teaching and their perspective into the minds of the students in place of whatever it is their teacher is giving them. And it's specifically teaching concerning righteousness. In other words, they're questioning how someone who is pursuing righteousness could possibly see it as uh, okay to socialize with this crowd of sinners. Now, listening to them, what, what do you suppose they would want to see happen here? Put yourself in their place for just a minute. You're king for a day. You have Jesus' attention and all those that are attending this party, and they're willing to do whatever you tell, tell them to do. What do you think the Pharisees would have told them to do in that circumstance? Well, just based on what we know about the Pharisees and based on what we can read into statements they make throughout the Gospels, I would contend this is essentially what they would have wanted. Obviously, Jesus shouldn't go anywhere near this crowd. So step number one is get Jesus out of this scene and all his disciples. You all are too good to be messing with these sinners. Number two, Jesus should then turn around and condemn the unrighteous living of these people. He should state what everyone should know, which is you're doing wrong things and we need to make sure that it's clear that Jesus doesn't condone it. So he would state that he condemns the unrighteous living of those people. And then third, he should demand that the crowd itself, those that are in this party, go immediately to the temple and before the temple and before the priest perform all the ritual acts under the law intended to atone for their unrighteousness and to cleanse them, to bring them back from an undefiled state. Go live the law to become righteous. Fourth, they should pay retribution. They should repay the money they've taken in their tax collecting. They should pledge to stop tax collecting. And then finally, if they do all these things, and there's probably even more that I'm not even thinking of, if they did all these things, then the Pharisees might permit the crowd to visit Jesus in a synagogue under the right circumstances. But of course, they would have to remain probably in the back of the synagogue because the front rows were reserved for the higher esteemed people in the Jewish culture. Pharisees, of course, would be sitting in the front row. You see how the whole thing is turned on its head? What the Pharisees were upset about was Jesus went to the setting of the sinner and lived amongst them. He didn't condone their sin. He didn't even participate in their sin. He was a party. But just by being there, he gave an accepting view, an acceptance to this crowd. What the Pharisees wanted was the crowd to be seen as sinful, condemned, feel guilty, feel the pressure that comes from being unrighteous, and then only if you meet our standards and requirements and rules, then we might give you an audience before the holy man, but only if you're willing to admit in that audience that you're lowly and not deserving of that audience. You see how it's all turned on its head. That's what the Pharisees wanted. To be sure, God's law is not the problem here. I'm not saying that the law and what it required was the problem. God says in his own words through Paul and Romans that the law is perfect, holy, and righteous. The problem is not the law. The problem is how the Pharisees, in their unbelief, misused the law. They were evil. They were unbelieving, hypocritical men who served themselves, not God. And they fought with Jesus to protect the system rather than to serve truth. They were more interested in their system and the power it gave them than they were in trying to find ways to help unrighteous people know God and please Him. Why are they caring so much about this man in the first place? Principally because of his popularity. And his popularity is a direct result of his success in the fact that he can perform miracles and he can heal and the power of his teaching. Those things have made him very successful. I don't want you to get in your mind, sometimes we have in our minds the television show or the movie we last watched about Jesus. 
We typically see those movies only showing him with huge crowds toward the end of his ministry as he enters Jerusalem or on the Mount of Olives. The scripture would tell us that no, his, his notoriety was strong very early, particularly in this land of uh, the region of Galilee. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have no interest in him, would not be following him. There wouldn't be scribes and Pharisees, as we studied last week, coming up from Jerusalem, all the way from Jerusalem to see what's going on. No, his notoriety now is of such a level that he threatens to upset the economy, that, the religious economy, if you will, that had been established for the sake of the Pharisees where they were in charge and they had their fiefdoms and they had their control, that was at risk and that was their concern. You know, it's worth taking a, a moment to parallel our own lives here as well because in our own world, the way we see men come in unrighteous ways trying to produce the same effect the Pharisees had is through a similar method. Men of today, they always come with rules and regulations wherever they think they get it from. Some go all the way back to the law again in the, in the Old Testament. They bring their own prohibitions and restrictions. If you fall outside these rules, you're no longer righteous. Well, to be sure, there are some rules you could probably find that would clearly define righteousness from unrighteousness. You know, there are, it's not too hard to find those. The problem is we want to deal with the margins. We get real absorbed in the margins of issues that probably aren't real clear indicators of righteousness or unrighteousness. We make them so. And then we judge everyone's worthiness for fellowship, for approval, on how they deal with those issues on the margins. And what Christ is saying is, let God worry about that. In the life of any given individual, let the Holy Spirit be the one to convict and drive people away from things that God doesn't want them to be involved with. Why not instead, letting God do that work, focus on the work He's given us to do, which is to carry the message into these places. Where the sinners are, where the unrighteous are. Not that we condone or participate in what we know to be unrighteous, but... You'd be surprised how easy it is to participate in the life of these people without taking that next step. We tend to make it such that we don't want to get anywhere near them for fear that we might fall with them. That's not much trust in the Holy Spirit, if you ask me. Now, you may know yourself well enough to know there are some settings where you're better left out, and that's fine. But there's plenty of others you can choose from where there are men and women who need the gospel. And because these men cannot fight against the Son of God who stands against them and their ways, they go instead to the pupils or the students. And that's where we'll see the greatest impact potentially from false teaching in our day. The men who know the Word of God well and who teach it well typically are not the ones attacked most directly, at least not in the way many of these other teachers work. They tend to go after the students. They want to teach you directly, kind of skipping through the one who's, who, who you are under in a consistent teaching realm. And they want to present to you new views that essentially try to bring back the rules of men to control the behavior of people. Here we see the Pharisees doing the same thing, fighting with the disciples over an appropriate way to associate with sinners. And as usually is the case, the Pharisees want the disciples to enforce the necessity of sinners becoming righteous before they receive the attention of men and of God. It's always that way, right? We're, we're supposed to become righteous and that's what gives us the right to be in God's fellowship. And of course, that's the analogy I've used before of putting lipstick on a pig. You can't make the unrighteous righteous and then expect God to then respond because we don't have the power in us to do that. As usual then, the unrighteous completely misunderstand what righteousness is. Christ is going to give them that perspective. He says, His mission is to seek after the unrighteous and call them to repent. He compares it to a physician. We've heard this before. It's a very famous analogy. He says He cares more for those who are sick than those who are healthy. Now, do you think he's saying that the Pharisees are healthy? 
Because if you consider that for a moment, he's implying perhaps that I didn't come to preach to you, Mr. Pharisee, because you're healthy. I'm coming to the sick sinner. Well, far from it. Christ knew just how sick these Pharisees were. Jesus makes another point here, by the way. You have to be with the sick people to heal them. He's doing a house call here. The physician can't heal the sick if he never gets into their midst. He's celebrating with them. He's not, and notice this. He's celebrating with them. He didn't show up and start lecturing them. Wouldn't we do that so often today? If we got invited to one of these scenes, we'd worry about it for two days. We'd consult with ten people we knew about whether we should or shouldn't go, right? We would hand ring over whether a Christian should be seen there or not. What about my witness? What about, what, should I even go? What if my friends see me there, right? We, I've done this. I, I can't believe nobody else has done this. And then you actually get into the moment and you think, okay, I've got to make sure they know I'm a Christian. So you play the role of the self-righteous Christian. No, I don't drink that. Thank you. No, I never drink like that. Thank you. you know, whatever. We don't necessarily do it that mechanically, but we try to set ourselves apart. Jesus didn't go in there and start lecturing them. He went and enjoyed himself. He was simply there amongst them. And they got to know him. He got to know them. There were friendships created. Maybe through those friendships, a word or two from him becomes the opportunity for them to know something they don't already know. He's living with them, as I said, not condoning what they do, nor participating in the unrighteous activities but yet living around them. We can't all be like Jesus in our ability to heal. We're not all the physician, but we certainly can be the one who delivers the master's medicine when he gives this opportunity. But of course, we've got to go into the midst of the sick people. Now, I want you to take note of the contrast. We said at the beginning there's a contrast building. Here's where it begins to build. Now, I want you to take note of the contrast Luke is starting to present to us. These men of the law, these Pharisees, they're upset at anything that breaks convention. They're, they're upset at Jesus' flaunting of the conventions of the day, the rules of the day. And they don't want Him to show these people friendship and mercy. They want retribution. They want penance. They want sacrifice from these people. They want these people to have felt some revenge from the Pharisees. Before they can receive any forgiveness, they need to pay the price for having done the sin. That's at the root of what these people want. In fact, if you were to go to Matthew's own account of his own saving and of this story where he's giving this party, if you go back into Matthew and look at his own account, he actually adds another piece of information that Luke doesn't record. He records Jesus quoting from Hosea saying in Matthew 9.13, Christ says, But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Matthew records Jesus quoting that Old Testament verse to make the point that on the one hand, the, the, G, the Pharisees of the day want sacrifice. They want something. They want, a, they want a pound of flesh out of these people before they get anything good in return. Jesus says that's not what compassion is. Compassion is all the opposites of that. We go to them before they come to us. We give them before we ask anything in return from, for their sin. Remember the law... The law revealed sin, but it offered no solution for it. The law reveals sin, but it does not offer any solution for it. It reveals unrighteousness. It does not produce righteousness. And, in fact, the only thing it produces as a solution to sin is condemnation. And that's no solution at all if you're the one under sin. The more we understand that, the more we're going to look to God to provide the solution. Paul, in fact, calls the law a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. It's a schoolmaster because once we understand that its only option, its only solution for sin is condemnation, you realize, well, I don't want that. Is there an alternative? 
And the schoolmaster says, well, yes, there is an alternative. It's called Christ. It drives us to Christ. The Pharisees are intent, are intent rather, on using it the way it's designed. That's the irony. They want to use the law exactly the way it's designed. They want to use it to judge and condemn because that's all they can understand the law to be. They have no heart to see these people turn from sin and follow God. They just want to condemn them. And then Jesus walks onto the scene and then he begins acting as if the law isn't going to be good enough. I think that's another part of it too. Jesus acts like the law is not good enough to handle this situation. Which of course is exactly the truth. The law has not solved the problem. But that made the religious leaders of the day terribly upset. Look at the next series of verses and the contrast now Christ actually begins to describe for us. Luke 5.33 They said to him, the disciples of John, now listen to this, Christ just gave them an analogy using a physician. They ignore it totally and they go right back to what they're concerned with. Look what the Pharisees say next. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, they will fast in those days. And he was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, it will both tear the new and the piece of the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old wine is good enough. This is a fairly complex set of comparisons he's making, but they all come down to the same basic issue. And we'll kind of build a little this week, finish next week. In response to Jesus declaring that he was correct, that he was right to mix with these people, that it was a good thing for him to do that, the Pharisees then try to point to his own failings and to the failings of his own disciples. The, the fact being that Jesus has said, hey, it's good to come into this setting so that I can minister to these people. The Pharisees' response is, well, you never do anything but that. Essentially, they're pointing out the fact that there's nothing but fun and joy amongst his disciples. There's never any of the other side. There's never any of the paying penance, of the sacrifice, of the things that their disciples do. And you have to get really an understanding of the culture a little bit here to, to really understand what they're saying. Interestingly, it's funny, they use John the Baptist when they talk about the disciples who fast. They use John the Baptist. They could have used anybody. Every disciple uh, did this. Every teacher had this pattern. They even mentioned themselves, the disciples of the Pharisees do the same thing. Why do you think they threw in John the Baptist? Well, I think the easy answer is that John the Baptist is intimately connected with Jesus. And that knowledge is, the case is that they're using John as a way of influencing Jesus because they figure, well, you two know each other so well. You, you know, he baptized you. There's some companionship, some relationship there. And you don't even do what your friend does. You're, you have no one who can stand with you and claim to do the thing you do with your disciples. You're out by yourself. They're trying to make him see, be seen as someone who's completely flaunting the rules of normalcy. And he's alone in doing it. Here's the thing you have to understand about the day and the time of this statement. In the life of a Jew, every day brought, brought trial and difficulties. And I'm not just talking about because of the nature of the, the time in history, of the fact that there was no H-E-B on the corner and there was no running toilets in the house. I'm not talking about that side of life. That was considered just normal. No, what made life as a Jew so difficult were the burdens that were brought by the law and by their adherence to the law. 
I don't even think we can begin to appreciate what life was like for these people. The law and the customs that had really grown up around the law and been piled on top of the law had made living in the Jewish culture so difficult, so weary, that life was a constant burden, in, in, particularly in the case of fasting. Disciples of any teacher would have fasted at least twice a week as a routine activity. You had these days of the week you knew you weren't going to eat during the sun-up time. And this was normal for any good religious Jew. That would be on top of all the regular prayer intervals, the temple sacrifices, the synagogue worship times, all the other kinds of regular ceremonial things that had to be done throughout the day or the week or the year if you were a Jew, worrying about your food, was it clean or not, you know, whether you could be in the wrong place and be defiled, whether you came upon a dead body accidentally, and whether or not you got sick and were defiled. It was just constant. You think about the weariness of that, day in and day out. That was the life of a Jew. And in the case here of the example Christ uses of a bridegroom, he taps into the one week, the one week in a Jewish man's life that he can actually have joy. As part of the Jewish ceremony for the wedding, the one week when the bridegroom and his party get together with the bride's family and have a week-long celebration, a big party, the rabbi or the priest would give dispensation for that week for all the religious practices to be foregone. No fasting, no praying, none of the other stuff you had to worry about. You were kind of un-Jewish for a week, except for all the wedding feasting. It was the one week a year, one week in lifetime rather, for a man and his bride to really feel the joy of having no burden on them in the way that the Jewish law provided. It was a tremendous freeing feeling for that week. And that's the comparison Christ is making here. He says you can't make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. This is the week of joy. Now, of course, he's using it in a slightly different sense because he is the bridegroom for his followers, ultimately to be called the church. And as the bride of Christ, when we were in his presence, and I, you and I have never been in a physical sense, I'm talking about the disciples in Christ's day, they were literally there in the week with their bridegroom. There's no fasting. It was all joy. And that's the point of Christ's response to the Pharisees. Why should I expect these followers of me to be fasting, to be forcing themselves into this dour, weary, unjoyful countenance when they're here with me now? I am the thing everyone has been fasting for. And now that I'm here, there's no reason for that. The joy should come from my presence. Jesus said fasting is to become a part of the experience of Christ's followers once he is gone. Once he's gone, and we know he's gone now on the basis of his crucifixion and ascension. We don't talk much about fasting as a culture, as a church. It doesn't come up very often in Scripture, actually, although in the New Testament it does come up periodically, in this, particularly in the Gospels and in Acts. So I think since it's come up today, today's the good opportunity to talk just briefly about what Scripture would provide for. Why is it that Christ says, once he's gone, fasting should be commonplace for the Christian? In fact, it seems to me that as a spiritual discipline, uh, fasting is virtually unknown in the church today. I, I would encourage you, maybe in your own circle of friends who are Christian, ask them how often or whether they've even fasted and what they mean by that, what they think fasting is. You'd be surprised, maybe, of how few people actually have ever tried it, much less do it regularly. But it is throughout the Gospels. It is in the book of Acts. It is commonly associated with prayer. Prayer and fasting is commonly the way it's described. And here we even see Jesus making note of its necessity, that it should happen once he's gone. So why does denying ourselves food have any spiritual significance? 
Where, where does the denying of food fit into being a good follower of Christ? Well, the simplest answer is it's not the food that matters, but the denying of ourself and of joy that reflects two things. First, a willingness to submit to God, and secondly, a picture of the fact that we are waiting for Him. A reminder of the fact that we are waiting for Him. Look at each one for just a moment. It's a discipline of submission because it's the clearest way to connect our will to our flesh. Have you ever had a tough time accepting the teaching that says you have a spirit and you have flesh and they work against one another and they're independent? If you're like me, sometimes you stop when you hear that and you think, okay, it sounds real spiritual, but if I really stop and think about it, how does this have anything to do with me? In other words, how does it act against me? How does the physical container I'm in have anything to do with what I think, say, or do? Isn't all of that just a product of my mind and my spirit? No, Scripture says the flesh actually has its own force apart from you. And the simplest and easiest way to prove that to yourself is to fast. Fasting gives you a very clear picture of how the will and the flesh are interconnected. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Our hunger is probably the strongest ever-present reminder of the strength of our flesh. It's got its own independent nature. It's got its own independent desire. I mean, you, you can be controlled by this feeling of hunger even though rationally in your mind you don't want to eat. Anybody ever tried to fast for an extended period of time? You know what I'm talking about. You've made a decision not to eat. You don't want to eat. You're not trying to eat. You're in fact trying everything not to eat, and you eat. Where did that come from? Where did that giving in to to eating come from? From this. From the container saying, eat. Making you do something that in your will and in your mind you don't want to do. And it doesn't just go with food, as you know. There are other things the body drives you to do as well. Food being just an easy, simple way to illustrate to you the reality of flesh and its desires. And if you practice the discipline of fasting regularly, at whatever interval you feel God calls you to do, denying yourself in a meaningful way in an area of food, and I'm not going to get specific on, what can I do this, can I not do this? No, then you've missed the whole spirit of it. Find some definition of what fasting is for you that will evoke in your body a fleshly desire to eat so that you can practice the battle. That's the whole point. If it's not a battle, you haven't accomplished anything. But in the accomplishing of the fight, in the dealing with the the flesh and its desire to control your will, you're slowly going to gain experience and skill in making the flesh be submitted to your will. Making your body take second place to to your will. And if it is your will then that takes ownership over what you do, then the Holy Spirit in you has an avenue in which to work through you. Because the Holy Spirit is going to work in conjunction with your own will but not, it cannot and will not contend with your flesh. That is your role. The will, is, it has to be submitted to the flesh so that the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to work in you. Otherwise, if you contend with or if you give in to your flesh, the Holy Spirit leaves you there and lets you suffer the consequences of a fleshly existence. That's why Paul tells the Corinthian church, you are fleshy. You live off this and what it wants, not off the will and what you know to be right in your mind. Finally, the second thing, fasting produces a reduction in our joy. If you've ever fasted 
And I have this experience when I fast. About 5 o'clock at night, coming home and then realizing I'm not going to be able to eat dinner tonight, I get that immediate sense of how much the joy of coming home is connected with having a good meal. And suddenly there's been very little joy in my day. The lunchtime opportunity to get away from work and go eat, didn't get that. The fun with the donuts and the coffee in the morning and talking to people as you start your day, didn't get any of that. The evening dinner, didn't get any of that. There was just a lot less joy in my day. And you get that sense. It is no fun. And you realize the joy that comes with the food that you have every day. Why are we so intent then on reducing our joy and in fact actually increasing suffering? Why is that a good thing? For the same reason Christ mentions in his discussion with the Pharisees. Because we want a reminder that in this world, we are to suffer waiting for his return. That true joy will come only in the presence of Christ. That whatever we take joy in in this world is really not true joy. It's a pale imitation of joy. And it's fleeting at best. And that momentary suffering and fasting is our way to remind ourselves that what we really want is Christ's return. And in that we'll find true joy. Meanwhile, it's all just temporary, substitutionary joy. That's why he says, there will be a time for fasting once I leave. Which implies that when I return, the fasting and the suffering ends. But with everything, of course, fasting isn't us doing anything in our own strength. Yeah, we're going to try to deny our flesh. That's an act of our will. But the strength to do that comes from God. And that's why prayer is so intimately connected with fasting. As you fast, make time to pray. In fact, here's the best way to do it in my experience. Every time hunger pang tempts you to break your fast, that's your reminder to go pray. Every time you feel that momentary urge to break your fast, that was God's reminder to pray, seeking His strength to get through the temptation. And I'll tell you what you'll get out of fasting. Here's the bottom line. If you will commit yourself to a discipline of fasting some, on some regular basis, you will gain, first, the experience of contending with your flesh. You will become an experienced warrior in that way. You will draw upon that discipline the next time you face yourself tempted by the flesh in a moment. You can draw upon the experience of knowing how to deal with your flesh because you've been fasting regularly. You dealt with it before. You've gained that experience. And secondly, you'll learn how to rely on God. You'll learn how to turn those moments of temptation into moments of prayer where you can turn your thoughts to God and let Him be the strength in you. As we wrap up here and prepare for communion, let's just consider one last thought as we finish. We'll pick up in these verses again next week and conclude with what Christ meant by the wineskins. The Pharisees are chastising Jesus for not requiring His disciples to fast because the disciples of others like the Pharisees fast. And what they really are looking for is sacrifice. Sacrifice of fasting as a means of holiness. Here again, a a giving up of joy so that I can make myself holy. They wanted to see suffering and sacrifice so that by those things men would be made holy. But Christ says, no, that's not what they're for. He says they're merely there as a sign of our waiting for God and of our submission to Him. They're not the means to holiness. They're pictures of something greater. The real holiness, the real religion is something altogether different. The contrast here is between men and their rules and the way by which we can try to make ourselves holy through penance, through sacrifice, externally, versus what Christ is saying, which is, what I bring is joy, joy from knowing it is not a matter of sacrifice that you become holy, but a matter of faith, and it will be an inward change, not an outward change. I said next week we're going to address the second part And then as we move forward in the next ten chapters, we're going to begin looking at how Christ and the Pharisees go back and forth on this point many times.
There's going to be many exchanges for the next ten chapters between these two groups, between Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees. But in each of these exchanges, it's the same issue. Over and over and over again. Culminating, as I said, in chapter 15 in the prodigal son. And then Luke is going to build this complete picture of the faith that Jesus brings and how it brings life in contrast to the religion that brought only death and hardship. That was the mainstay of these Pharisees. How are we doing on this test? As we go into communion, as you go into prayer, I want to challenge you just for a moment. How do we compare to the Pharisees in this test, I wonder? Do we represent our faith to others as joy or as penance? When others ask about what it takes to be a good Christian, do we respond in ways that reflect the joy and love and grace we have? Or do we respond in ways that talk about the burdens of works, of religious rules? As freedom from restrictions or as a life of freedom? Or, I'm sorry, as a life of restrictions or as a life of freedom from restrictions? And obviously a life of faith brings with it the desire to live in a way that pleases God. I'm not saying we can do anything we want. But are we... Here's, here's the way the rules were, or here's the way the Pharisees saw themselves. The Pharisees were rule enforcers. That's how they helped God. They were rule enforcers. They were making sure people stayed within the lines. Do we see ourselves that way, or do we see ourselves the way we should, which is we're the rule breakers. We're the ones in need of God's grace every day. We have no right to be a rule enforcer. We're too busy breaking them ourselves. Father, I pray that we have taken out of your word today a heart to be those who might be long patient, long suffering, joyful, Father, forgiving, showing, Father, a measure of the grace you've shown us. It's so easy, Lord, to read about the Pharisees and to look down on them and see them as someone we never would be. And then yet we might leave this room and go back to our regular lives, Father, and become those Pharisees. Father, we know that there are things you expect us to do. There are, in some sense, rules, things you've asked us to do in, in how we live and how we approach life. But, Father, we also trust in the Holy Spirit to guide us in those things. Meanwhile, Lord, we pray that you would give, give us the desire to put all our attention on bringing the good news, on being a physician, on healing those, Father, who remain sick. Of even as we learn, Lord, what it means to be righteous, that we can be used by you to show others. And as we go into communion, Father, we remember that your Son was given up for us. We know, Father, that as we participate in things like communion, we are obeying you, and in that we please you. But it is not by this obedience that we have been made righteous. No, Father, the righteousness came by faith. And because we have faith now, we have the capability to please you with our obedience. Let this time be one that is pleasing to you as we seek to obey and to be your pupil, to be your disciple. Father, thank you for the time and the word. And let us go out, Lord, with grace and with love. And Father, let us go out as well with a desire to spread the good news. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.